Well, hey, fellas, how you doing? Hey, Nate. It seems like we were just doing this. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were. We, oh, is that why? That's why. All right. Well, um, I, I'm so grateful for your guys' time and, um, and the preparation you put into the messages last night and then today and just the expertise and your passion for God's Word and applying it to this important topic. So um, the folks in the audience have submitted a bunch of questions. Guys, I've tried to do my best to represent them, took them into some, some buckets of, of topics. Um, and so we'll just go ahead and get started. And I think this first one really is, um, is a direct response to your message this morning, uh, Phil, about the truth of the Bible. And so um, this one's a, a great question just to kind of get us started about how, do we, how can we prove that the Bible is true? And in specific, this, this person asks, is it a circular argument to say the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true? And we know the Bible is true because the Bible says it. And so, you know, this gets at the fundamental uh, aspect of what we're talking about, right? That, yeah. that the Bible is a source of truth. Yep. So can you address that? Yeah. Um, I don't think you have to prove that the Bible is true. Uh, it, 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 you, you could conceivably disprove it if there was anything that was untrue in there. No one's ever successfully done that. Uh, but Scripture says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. God's word itself has power. It's sharp, uh, sharper than two than a two-edged sword, and uh, pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and all that. Everything Scripture says about itself, every claim the Bible makes about its own power, uh, is self-authenticating. I think it was Spurgeon who said. The Bible's like a lion. You don't defend it. You let it out, and it defends itself. Uh, and I think that's true. You use the Scripture, and you'll see the power of it. You'll see the effect of it. And my own salvation settled that issue for me. I grew up in a liberal Methodist church, uh, going to Sunday school through early high school, hearing the stories in Sunday school that we were urged not to take too seriously, you know, and I began to notice this around junior high. We had a, a teacher, she was a woman who had a doctor's degree in philosophy, and she would talk through these stories in the New Testament and say, you know, Jesus didn't really heal this guy with the withered arm. This is a, this is a moral lesson for us. And then she'd make some moral thing. And, and I remember I said, if you keep telling us this every week, not to take it too seriously, if that's the case, why do we even come and talk about it? Because I could stay home and watch the NFL pregame, and that would be more profitable. And she thought I was just being a smart aleck. And I was being a smart aleck, but I wasn't just being a smart aleck. There was, there was a serious point there. And, uh, but she tattled on me to the pastor, and he summoned me to his office, uh, asked if I could come by on a weekday and have a chat with him. And uh, so I did. He said, so what happened here in Sunday school? And I told him, you know, she's telling us about the man with the withered arm, and it didn't really happen, but there's a lesson here. And I said, if it didn't really happen, if this stuff isn't true, why are we, why are we coming to Sunday school and spending an hour talking about it? It's, it's like studying Aesop's fables, you know? And uh, he said, well, you know, she's right. It didn't really happen. This is the pastor. And uh, I said, would you say that about all of the miracles in scripture and he said oh yeah he says you know like you don't really believe that Elisha made a steel axe head float you don't really believe there was a fish big enough to swallow Jonah and all of that and and she and he says the man with the withered arm here's what happened he said 
He heard Jesus say, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Uh, and so he knew better than to take that literally. So he bound his hand to his side and vowed never to use it again. And Jesus said, loose him, let him go. And that's how he healed the man with a withered hand. Well, I'm a junior high kid, and I'm like, okay, there's a certain reasonableness to that. Uh, and so I asked him about other miracles. Then I didn't know the Bible well enough to come up with very many of them, but Moses parting the Red Sea, everything I'd seen in the movies. And he explained them all away, and, and it left me shaken in my faith. Uh, and as I drove away from there, I thought, I should have asked him about the resurrection. But I, but I, it, I realized instantly that he didn't believe any of those other miracles. He didn't believe in the resurrection either. And, and I also thought, if the people in that church knew he doesn't believe in the resurrection, none of us would be going. And I stopped going to church. And so for a year and a half or two years, I didn't go to church at all. But I still was troubled by guilt and things like that. And I, one night I was lying in bed. I had offended my sister. I don't remember what I said to her, but she was angry with me. And I was feeling guilty because I was definitely wrong. Uh, and so I thought, you know, do something to assuage my guilt. And I picked up my Bible and opened it randomly, which is what I always did. And whatever I treated it like a fortune cookie. Whatever my eyes lit on, that's what I would pay attention to. And it opened to the first page of 1 Corinthians. And I thought, I've never read a whole book of the Bible. What if I read this? That would make me feel spiritual. And so I counted the pages, and it was longer than I hoped. <laughs> But I started reading, and, and which is, this is not where you'd say, I was 17 years old at the time, not where you'd send a, a teenager to find the gospel, right, 1 Corinthians. But it absolutely demolished me, because those first three chapters, Paul just goes after the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. And I was so convicted by that. I thought it would make sense to me if the Lord said he hated the foolishness of this. But he says he hates the wisdom of this world. Everything that I think is good about me, the Lord hates. And it convicted me. And in the course of that week, a series of amazing things happened. Somebody handed me a tract nobody had ever done. It had the gospel in it pretty clearly. Another guy invited me to an evangelistic meeting where I heard a preacher preach the gospel for the first time. And this preacher started his message on the crucifixion of Christ in Isaiah 53. Now, again, I wasn't a Bible scholar, but I knew that Isaiah was in the Old Testament. And so I didn't even have a Bible with me. The guy who invited me had one on his lap, and he wasn't using it. He's looking around. So I took the Bible off his lap and started thumbing through, is this really in Isaiah? And it was. And that, that realization that... The preacher was also quoting from Psalm 22. The realization that Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 described in such detail the crucifixion of Christ centuries before it happened, that in and of itself erased any doubt I ever had about whether the Bible is the word of God. Uh, and, I, and I remember being angry that they never showed me this in Sunday school, you know. But that left an indelible impression on me that Scripture is not only true, it is self-attesting, right? It's not a circular argument. The power of Scripture alone is what changes our lives. And that's why if you've been transformed by Scripture, you shouldn't doubt it, right? I understand why worldly people who've never felt the impact of the power of God's Word would think 
you know, that's a circular argument. I don't understand why any Christian whose life has been transformed by the power of God's word would ever have any need for further proof that God's word is, that the Bible is God's word. So that would be my answer to that. Uh, I think the Bible is self-attesting. Again, just to summarize what Spurgeon said, it's like a lion. You don't need to defend it. Let it out. It'll defend itself. You know, Phil, as you mentioned, that passage where it talks about how the wisdom of the world is <clears throat> foolishness to God and, and vice versa. I'm thinking about this old Michael Card song that came out in the late 80s titled God's Own Fool. And I love the chorus of that song where, it, where he says, <clears throat> so we follow God's own fool and only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable. Come be a fool as well. So I just invite you to come be a fool. Believe the unbelievable. Yeah, the gospel is unbelievable. But I think even our nature is such that even if we could prove it, just for the sake of conversation, even if we could prove it, our nature is so hardened against God. Yeah, that's what Jesus said, isn't it? He said, you know, even if somebody rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe it. And remember, in in Mark's account of the crucifixion, there's a woman who's basically mocking Jesus on the cross saying, well, come down from the cross and then we we would believe. No, we wouldn't. No, we wouldn't. Our nature is that hard against what the Bible teaches. So even if we could prove it, we wouldn't believe it. Absolutely. Thank you for both those responses. That's fantastic. And, you know, in your own testimony, Phil, really segues into the next um, question here, which is really kind of centered at the youth. We know that the youth are being targeted uh, in our school systems and in Sunday schools ac- across the board, that if you can win the hearts and minds of the youth, then you get the next generation, right? And we've seen that strategy being fairly successful. And some could argue extremely successful over the last um, several decades, as you've um, alluded to, Phil. But, um, Daryl, for you, it, for those who are teaching Sunday school, who are interacting with youth, who have their own children that they're trying to direct, where do you start with with providing a, um, a concrete defense against some of these woke and, and critical race theory doctrines that are being proclaimed? Where do you start off a, a young teenager, per se? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, when it, when it comes to whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's in public school or any learning environment, <clears throat> if you're a parent, if you are a, uh, a, a teacher, an administrator in a school system, especially if you're a believer, I think where you start is you have to recognize that those young people aren't just flesh and blood young people. They are souls. They are souls. They are souls who, just like each of us, from the moment we were conceived, eternity began for you. They are souls who are going to spend eternity somewhere. So in terms of pedagogy, you're not just teaching them facts or you're not just passing along information um i spoke earlier this morning about worldview what you're doing is shaping a worldview you're shaping a worldview and as you begin to see those young people as young image bearers of god who are going to spend eternity somewhere i've I've taken the same perspective with my own children Uh, your children are going to die one day unless Jesus returns first 
and you have to prioritize whether they're your children or someone else's children. You have to prioritize their spiritual development. You have to be able and willing to incorporate, inculcate the gospel into whatever it is, you're t- whatever else it is you're teaching them, because eternity is at stake. Regardless of what, of what else you're teaching them, eternity is at stake here. There are souls at stake here. But in doing that, I, th- I think Nate put it very well, especially as it relates to critical race theory. This is why critical race theorists are fighting so hard to get CRT taught in the schools. It's because they know that if they can get the minds of your children, if they can get your, it's no different than Nazism. No different than what Hitler attempted, than the Nazis attempted in the 1940s in Germany. You get the children. You get the children first. Okay? They want the minds and hearts of your children because ultimately what they want in my message this afternoon, I'm really not trying to tee this up as some sort of cliffhanger, but there's a quote that I'm going to read towards the end of my message from a public school teacher that's absolutely jaw-dropping as it relates to what their objective is, what, what the objective is. And w- when you understand that, that increasingly it's becoming known that more and more teachers in public schools who are members of these teachers' unions, they're socialists and communists is what they are. Public schools have become indoctrination centers. They're not educating your children anymore. Listen, two plus two doesn't even equal four anymore. It doesn't equal four anymore. So I would encourage you to read what these teachers believe, if you can. If you can get information on what they believe. Educate yourself on what they believe, and that's what people like Phil, me, and Virgil have done. Um, I'm reminded of this line. I think it's from either Godfather Part 1 or Godfather Part 2. I forget the one. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm, from the, I'm from the Michael Corleone School of Apologetics, okay? <laughs> Michael Corleone said, my father always taught me to keep my friends close but my enemies closer. If you want to be a good apologist, study what your enemies believe. Study what your enemies believe. And, w- and then you can argue intelligently against the ideology and the philosophies that, that they're promoting against your children, against the church, because you can use their own words and ideologies against them. Anything to add to that, Phil? Amen. <laughs> Amen, indeed. Um, this next line of questions, and there were several, I think, that were just provoked um, probably from our discussion last night, Phil, about addressing homosexuality. We know that the effeminate... Um, and the the acceptance of the um, the gay community is really just something that's almost you know uh, expected now. Yeah. Uh, how do we as believers compassionately confront homosexuality or a person who is on the fence, if that's a way, and and really present the gospel? What's a good pathway? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because um, I run into this occasionally. My, my Two best friends from college era both had brothers who were homosexuals, both of them. And, um, and, and they were close enough friends of mine that I had relationships with the whole family. And um, uh, one, of them, uh, one of them died, was the, like one of the first people in his state to die of AIDS. The other one's still living, and he's an artist, artist who has a, a bit of fame in the artistic community. And he follows me on Facebook. So he's on my Facebook page. And uh, I'm always embarrassed when Christians who are on the page think 
the way to deal with an unsaved homosexual person is mockery or ridicule or anything that's derogatory or demeaning. That's never the appropriate response. I mean, they, they, have, they, they are created in the image of God just like we are, and they have maybe different kinds of sinful propensities than we do, but they're sinners just like we are in need of salvation. And so particularly a, a person who is a... And Paul makes this distinction very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5 that if a person professes to be a Christian and lives in a sinful life like that, then you're not to have anything to do with him, right? Don't, don't try to make him a friend and certainly don't encourage him in, in any way. But you can't go out of the world and refuse to have any impact on the life of someone who's in bondage to sin. Treat them with dignity. Treat them in a friendly way like you would anyone else. Don't countenance their sin. And when the subject comes up, you've got to make it clear that this is a sin, and it's a sinful perversion that Scripture treats very seriously. But I wouldn't do that in a way that deliberately tries to humiliate them publicly or anything like that. But don't tone down, down the gospel. Give them the, the truth as straight as possible. Pray for those opportunities to do that. Uh, and and I found over the years that people who I speak to about the gospel like that, generally, there are some who will cut off your friendship and that's the end of your opportunity ever to have fellowship with them. But a lot of them uh, just appreciate the fact that you're you're honest and candid with them. Uh, uh, and they, 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 they get that, that if you, if you genuinely have compassion for their plight, they sense that. They, they, that comes through. They get the vibe. So uh, that's what I would say. And uh, if you're on my Facebook page, don't, don't, uh, don't say things that are deliberately humiliating or demeaning to other people who may be following me on Facebook who are not believers and are in bondage to sin. I want to reach those people. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's worth noting the distinction. I think that, that people might take some of maybe your comments or folks who address the, the support of homosexuality from the church. There we are harsh and we draw a hard line, as you, as you alluded to. But for those who are unsaved, we don't expect them to, to act as, as saved people, right? So they, they need the gospel. Yeah, and you, but you have to take the same hard line with regard to the question of whether this is a sin or not. Of course it is. Uh, the, the, yeah, but it is different in that if someone wants to profess to be a Christian and live that kind of lifestyle, then I'm, I'm clearly commanded, Scripture says, with such a one, don't even eat. Because, because you need to make it clear to them that uh, you, you're not going to countenance that sin or call them a brother or dignify their profession of faith as long as they are deliberately pursuing a lifestyle of sin. Yeah, I'm just looking at I just want to add to what Phil just said, James chapter 5, uh, verses 19 and 20. I think this will be an encouragement to us all in, in the context of the question that was just asked. James writes this, he says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So th that's a good text to, to keep in mind. You know, I think about <clears throat> John chapter 4 is probably my favorite New Testament chapter in, in the entire New Testament. This is where Jesus is <clears throat> engaged in a discourse with the Samaritan woman at the well. And um, 
I don't mean to be funny, but a lot of evangelicals, I call this the Starbucks chapter because people look at Jesus in this chapter in his discourse with the Samaritan woman as, as if he just asked her over to a Starbucks and said, hey, let's have a latte or something and talk about this. Let's talk about your adultery. Let's talk it out. But no, that's not what he did. What Jesus does, and this is how the gospel works. Jesus engaged this woman at the well. He didn't just talk about that current adulterous relationship that she was in right at that moment where he says, you know, you're correct. You don't have a husband. What did Jesus do? He dug even deeper and said, matter of fact, the last five men you've been with uh, weren't your husband. But if you really want the gospel to do its work, you have to let the gospel dig deep. And if you're not going to let it dig deep, if you're just going to treat it as some sort of superficial thing where, you know, even I don't care what the sin is, whether it's homosexuality or whatever the case may be, <clears throat> you have to be willing to pull that pull that wound, you know, expose that wound so that the gospel deals with everything that undergirds that sin that you're enslaved to. Uh, otherwise, it's just moralism uh, at that point. Uh, but But I love how Jesus dealt with this woman at the well so much so. What does she do? She ends up running into town. She says, come see a man, not who, who healed me of my disease, who gave me uh, everything I asked for, who gave me even the water that I was thirsty for. She said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, I don't know about you guys. I've never witnessed to any. I've never, shared the, I've never begun sharing the gospel with someone by pointing to my own sin. I've never done that. She was a better evangelist than I could ever be come see a man who told me everything I ever did that's when you know the gospel has worked that you shared the gospel effectively and accurately absolutely thank you for that um this next uh line of questioning I think um Daryl you're this is appropriate for you and you've hit on this already but you know it's it's come up a couple of different ways in here and so I think in a lot of ways this reflects how much we've been inundated by the the um, agenda of the woke community, but you know, in this, it's talking about you know contending for Christianity in light of not all Christians have been morally perfect. They're specifically noting um, Edwards and Whitfield as being slave owners. Um, how would you address the fact that throughout history and even today? Christians aren't perfect, they have moral failings, but yet can be believers who are truly saved. Uh, how do you reconcile that, and how do we make a defense of that? I think it's actually pretty easy to reconcile, to be honest with you, because re- remember, although we're redeemed, we're regenerate, we're not yet glorified yet. So h- here we are, every believer in this room is still a redeemed sinner. So you still got remnants of your sinful nature uh, that reside uh, in each each and every one of us. So I think the mistake we make, um, and, and listen, it's predictable when, when people want to call out people like Edwards and Whitfield. I think it's predictable when they do that, but the mistake they make is looking at other Christians as their model. I'm not your model. Christ is your model. Christ is your model. Christ is my model. I think that's why Paul could say, well, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't follow me as I follow Jonathan Edwards. Don't follow me as I follow George Whitfield. You follow me as I follow Christ. Um, I've told someone this on Facebook uh, before. This person was critical of Christians um, and, and the fact that they don't lead 
in his estimation, a morally perfect life. Well, number one, his, he's totally misunderstands what Christianity is. Christianity is not about moralism. It's not about moralism. There were, there were people preaching moralism on this planet long before Jesus came into this world. Every other religion outside of Christianity is essentially moralism. It's essentially behavior modification. But I told this person on Twitter, I said, well, you, you made the mistake. Your mistake is that you're looking at Christians. You're not looking at Christ. Christ is the only perfect model we have. I'm going to be imperfect till the day I take my last breath. I even tell my wife, do not hold me. Don't esteem me too highly because trust me, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to let everyone in here down at some point. Uh, but I think we have to uh, uh, adhere to Paul's words in Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, because your life now is in Christ. Set your mind on things in heaven where Christ is. Christ is there. Okay, so the, 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 your model is, is, is there. Your model is in Christ, not me. Now, we should encourage one another as much as we can to be imitators of God because that's what the scriptures teach us, to be imitators of God. But again, we're to be imitators of God. And as much as I might esteem someone um, who's a professing believer, I might esteem that person. That person's never going to be perfect. That's why Christ lived the perfect life for us. Okay, so we can never attain to that standard of righteousness. So I don't know why it shocks people that um, Edwards, Whitfield, and others fell short of their expectations. Um, they should feel they should fall short of their expectations. Matter of fact, the person who accuses them of falling short of their expectations themselves fall short of God's expectations. So it's a full circle. If you want to talk about it, Phil? Anything to add? Yeah, uh, when people use that argument with me, I point them to Hebrews 11 and say, you know, look at the list there. You got Samson, who was creepy in a lot of ways. Uh, Abraham was a serial liar. Moses killed a guy. Uh, I mean, if you want to start disqualifying people because they've committed uh, gross sins, then we're all disqualified. That's a ridiculous argument, I think. Uh, the question is, particularly when it's someone. Like Whitfield and Edwards both had a clear understanding of gospel truth and proclaimed it clearly. Uh, yeah, they 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 didn't decry slavery the way we wish they would have, but uh, there's no evidence that they were abusive or or uh, cruel in any sort of way that would that would make them you know like Hitler or anything. Uh, they're redeemed sinners. We all are. And, it, you know, you can plow through my life. You'll find things I've done that are wrong. And I'm ashamed of them properly. But uh, if that causes you to say, well, then he has absolutely nothing to teach me, then you're never going to be able to learn anything from anybody because, like Daryl said, the only one who really is perfect is Christ. And he's the one who, who we ought to look to and seek to emulate. Uh, this one, either one of you uh, could deal with, you're both um, well-versed, you take on the establishment often and, and very well, but as it comes to listening to voices in the secular uh, realm that align with our thinking, you know, the, the Ben Shapiro's of the world, the, the, the right kind of side of the media, um, how much should a believer be getting information from those sources versus getting on 
the antithesis and getting on grace to you and getting on um, uh, truth matters. You know, can you just kind of speak to those voices that really do align a lot with what we believe, but it's much more political than it would be spiritual? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, uh, Ben Shapiro uh, interviewed John MacArthur one time. And uh, that was a fascinating interview because, uh, of course, they hit on things that they disagree with each other on. Um, I listen to Ben Shapiro at times and and find he has profitable things to say. Uh, what you have to be cautious of, though, is just remember that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, and that includes all all of every idea that suggests that what is wrong with this world has a political solution. The right wing is just as wrong about that as the left wing, uh, about, about that, the idea that we can heal this world with the right political solutions. There is no political solution to what ails the world, and Christians need to keep that in focus. There are issues, particularly today, that arise in the p- political realm that have clear moral and spiritual significance, the idea that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, the whole LGBTQ agenda and all that clearly intrudes on issues where scripture speaks clearly and we can't back away from those things just because well that's politics it it was it was a biblical and moral issue before it was a political issue so we have to speak the truth but if you think uh, the solution to uh, the the moral decline of our nation lies in who, who gets elected president or what legislation gets passed then you're you're missing the point as a Christian. I think I quoted last night where Paul says in Galatians that if righteousness could come from the law, Christ died in vain. You can't make America more righteous than it is by passing laws. You might curtail some of the expression of evil, and that's a good thing. But if, as a Christian, that's where you focus your efforts, that's where you put your resources in politics, you're, you're missing the boat because the real solution lies in Christ and the promise of the gospel, because he changes hearts, and no legislation can change someone's heart. You might rule out a wrong behavior, but you're not going to change that person's heart. But the gospel can do that, and so as Christians, I think we have to keep those things in focus, which means if you're listening to podcasts like that, there's nothing wrong or sinful about that. You might get some good insights and some good arguments and and a clearer perspective on what's happening in the world than you'd get from, you know, the secular media. But uh, but don't begin to think in those terms that, well, here's what we really need. Uh, I'm going to, you know, abandon my preaching. And there have been, there've been some leading evangelical figures over the years who abandoned their preaching ministry in order to go into political activism. You know, Tim LaHaye did that. Uh, Jerry Falwell basically did that. And... Um, uh, that's not good. That, that is, uh, that's upside-down priorities. You can do far more through evangelism than you'll ever do by politics. So uh, n- not to say there's anything wrong with, with uh, you know, being politically active. Just don't let that overshadow or overwhelm the work you do for Christ and the gospel. Daryl, anything to add to that? Um, <coughs> excuse me. I would just add... Um, I would recommend that you guys go out and listen to our Just Thinking podcast episode titled Activist Theology. Um, I think uh, that will be helpful in giving you sort of a context from where I come from on that. I totally agree with Phil. Uh, The Activist Theology episode, we spent over two hours 
arguing from scripture why activism is not the solution. Protest and demonstration is not the solution. The gospel is the solution. It changes hearts. And I think a problem with evangelicalism today, especially as it relates to the penetration to the degree that the social gospel has penetrated evangelicalism, <clears throat> is that social justicians don't have the patience to let the gospel do what it's, what it's designed to do. Uh, they want to bring about a gospel Esque a gospel light like light beers like like gospel light solution through politics through protest through legislation through activism and that's not how the gospel works i'm sorry the same gospel that saved you needs to save that unsaved police officer out there uh who though he wears a badge he or she may wear a badge their heart may not be regenerate so the idea of police reform is a contradiction in terms if i've ever heard one you you need to be uh, reformed from the inside. That that police officer needs to be reformed from the inside, just like you were. Uh, so I don't. Why anyone would expect a uh, a protest or uh, voting in a certain candidate or voting out a certain candidate to bring about gospel centered results is just dumbfounding to me. It's a great point. You know, kind of tagging on to what you guys are talking about that the gospel is the central issue. There's a big push. We're in California. That's hopefully not a shock to anybody. Um, but we're definitely seeing this idea of, of the exit, right? There's this exodus out of California to go find greener pastures, mostly politically. A lot of people are abandoning really solid churches to go to a, uh, a red state that without seemingly prioritizing where they're going to worship their responsibility as Christians, um, there's a whole thing, a lot to say about that. But can you guys speak on when is it time to move on and when is it time to say this is where the Lord has me and this is where I'm going to affect the gospel where I'm at? Can, Phil, you mind if I speak to that? Because Melissa and I live in that right now. Um, Melissa and I moved here to California from Atlanta in 2019. Um, uh, and I can promise you, and I, I feel comfortable enough with Phil to be able to be, on, be honest and say this, were it not for us being convinced that God moved us here to be part of the work that's going on with Grace to You, we would never move to California. Never, never, ever. I would never move to California. <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. I'm saying, I, I'm no. saying there's not a chance <laughs> I would ever move to California. Um, but um, it's, 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 it's just coming from outside of California, we've been here three years now, and um, I tell my friends and family back in uh, Atlanta, I say, you know, I've been here long enough now to realize this, that there's two Californias. <clears throat> there's this beautiful, gorgeous, unbelievably cre uh, 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 just diverse state in its topography. The, the state is just amazingly beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous here. Uh, in Atlanta, we're four and a half hours from the Atlantic Ocean. Here, you're within minutes of the Pacific Ocean. But then the other California is living here. There's living here. And I tell my friends back in Atlanta, never confuse the one with the other. Okay? It is hard living here. But that, I'm sorry, that's a rebel. We're new to this state, coming from uh, uh, Georgia, where you don't have the political foot on the neck of all your citizens there like you do here in California. Um, I don't want to politicize this this Q&A, but it, it blows my mind the degree to which people seem to be comfortable living under such 
regulatory and legislative burden for the sake of having good weather. I mean, th- this is this this is unbelievable to me. But we took all that into consideration in order to to obey God. The bottom line is, are we going to obey God and come to California? And that's what we did. We were con- we were convinced when when Phil approached us about uh, joining Grace to You. Melissa and I didn't have one conversation about whether that was God's will or not. We knew it. But when Phil, I can, Phil, I can remember to this day when you announced it on your social media pages that we were coming to grace to you. People slammed me on my Facebook page saying, are you crazy? <laughs> I'm serious. Hundreds of people said, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? You're going to California? But they were thinking, obviously, in secular worldly terms. We had to think in spiritual terms. We had to to remind ourselves constantly, this is where God has called us to serve him. And I remember something John MacArthur said recently, Phil. He said people ask him all the time, well, why why are you still in California? John said, well, this is where the people who need to be saved are. This is where the people need to hear the gospel are. So we've been here for three years. I'm not going to pretend and say that it's been an easy transition because in some ways it hasn't. Um, but you, w- when, when, when you know that God has called you to do something, you obey, and you obey immediately. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. So we're here. God has us here. We're serving the Lord here, and we praise God for, for bringing us here despite the political atmosphere that's, that's absolutely berserk here. So, well, Sorry, Phil, I didn't mean to vent, but that's just <laughs> no, a, that's good. That's a, <laughs> it's a great perspective. It, it is God's will for you to be here, so you better stay. <laughs> right, right. Maybe a North Campus in Bakersfield. That might <laughs> <be>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that question actually uh, is, I'm glad it was asked, because I, I think a, a lot of people have their priorities messed up. You know, they... They, uh, they think where I work is more important than where I worship, and I think the true priority is the other way. Mm-hmm. Darlene and I made that decision early when we were married. Uh, it was easy because we were dirt poor, and we lived in downtown Chicago, and we didn't want to raise a family there. And so we hadn't been married more than two months, and we said, you know, we need to move somewhere where we can actually start a family. How what do we do? I mean, I was a at that time I was doing freelance editorial work for Moody Press. I could live anywhere I wanted to, but uh, I said let's let's pick an area where the, we know there's a church where we'll be well fed and able to use our spiritual gifts. And to to us, the place where we're going to church is more important than the place that I'm going to be employed by. And so we moved by faith. And that sort of set the pattern for our marriage. I think every move we've made since then has been based on where we could best serve the Lord, and the Lord has honored that. And I always encourage people to do that. If you, you know, if you're offered a job that pays you 10% higher, but it takes you to a place where there are no sound churches and you don't have the tools to help plant a new church, uh, you ought to reconsider that move maybe. If, if you're in a place where you're able to use your gifts and you're having fellowship, that's far more important than the question of where you work or how much money you earn. Uh, so those priorities, I think, are very important. Oh, that's great. Um, so uh, there's a, a number of questions here, and this might have been spurred on a little bit by um, yesterday's talk just on training in the workplace 
in school, and it really goes to how can how much can you be a part of trainings and and um, ideologies and whether it's in school or work, how much can you participate in a CRT based type training or this um, equity and diversity type trainings, and when do you you know say no I'm not going to be a part of it is it a form of assent just to be present there or is there a way to kind of ride the fence you know we face a little of that even at grace to you uh simply because the state mandates that you have to take uh training about um you know the workplace environment and uh sexual harassment and things like that and in in all of those programs there is the, there is built in um, a strain of humanism that you really you have to be able to either uh, you know answer in your own mind or work around uh, but but because those some of those programs are required by law we we do them but uh, with our with our employees, you know, we sort of put the asterisk on it and say, "This is a secular course. It's filled with humanistic ideas. You you have to do it by state law. So we're going to do it, but it doesn't in- indicate any kind of assent or agreement. The minute they begin to demand your assent or agreement or even silence when it comes to uh, biblical issues, like, okay, you can believe that, but don't say it. That's pretty much what that thing last night was saying we're not trying to change your belief but we are going to tell you what you need to say you know uh the minute that happens you face a real moral conflict and you have to obey god rather than men that's the biblical principle uh so that's my answer it may cost you your job someday but you have to obey god rather than men yeah i think it falls under the precept uh where jesus says give to caesar what belongs to caesar but to god what belongs to god so I think to the to the extent, like Phil just said, to the extent that you can comply, <clears throat> you comply um, with resistance, if I can put it that way. But at the point where uh, you know that th- those mandates or those requirements uh, start to brush up, and I think you'll know when they start to brush up because the Holy Spirit will convict you of that. But I think you need to be careful not to try to be a martyr for the cause. Uh, you got bills to pay, you know, you got to keep a roof over your head. There's a practical aspect of this that needs to be balanced and measured up against your convictions. So you don't want to talk yourself into being a martyr for your beliefs when that may not be what God is calling you to do. So don't convince, don't talk yourself into something that God's not calling you to do. But I think if you stay prayerful about it, stay prayerful about it, um, you know, we, we know from James, right, James 1, that anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give him that wisdom. Uh, so treat this as a battle that God needs to fight and that not, not one that you need to fight so that you're wearing the, uh, the armor of God and not your own armor. Um, uh, but uh, I think the Holy Spirit will convict you when that time comes where you need to um, resist out of conviction, not resisting by making the battle personal or anything like that. But I think there needs to be some balance there. Um, I worked for Bank of America for almost 20 years uh, back in Atlanta, and Bank of America is arguably one of the most pro 
LGBTQ2A XYZ comp uh, companies uh, in, in, in a co on the globe, um, uh, but I never volunteered uh, for any of those pride events. I never volunteered for any events that they were sponsoring or co-sponsoring that went against my personal convictions. So there is a balance that can be struck um, um, uh, between your convictions and the practical responsibilities that you have uh, every day. But I would say pray, stay prayerful about that. Yeah, Scripture doesn't promise us as Christians that we don't have to do anything that's distasteful to us. Sometimes we do. We can't do anything that's disobedient to God, but the fact that it's distasteful to me doesn't necessarily make it something I ought to, you know, defy. Uh, but you can do it under protest. It's like uh, if you're on a sports team and the uh, referee makes a bad call that you can't change and he won't change. You can play the game under protest. It's not going to really change anything, but it lets everybody know where you stand. And that, to me, is the most important thing as a believer, that you keep your testimony uh, sound. And as long as you do that, then you may, you may have to swallow some, uh, uh, you know, at least listen to some humanistic teaching that you know you're not going to be in agreement with, but um, you do it under protest. Absolutely. That's, that's very helpful to clarify, and, and I think it's important um, for sure. Um, this kind of is going back, and I, I think, Daryl, you might be a good one just to kind of start this, but I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this, that really kind of talks about, okay, we come out of this conference, we're armed up, maybe we read a couple of books, and we have some good biblical um, foundations for why we're opposed to CRT and, and wokeism, um, and we get the response, well, of course you're opposed to CRT, you don't know what it's like to be oppressed, because you're of the privileged class. Um, so how do we... <laughs> How do we, um, you know, and that can be off-putting. That can be maybe even a little intimidating for folks. Uh, where do you start? Well, I would start by saying that, that the person who poses that question, they don't know what it's like to be oppressed either. There's not an oppressed person in this room. There's not an oppressed person in this country. But that's, see, that's what, that's what critical race theory does. Cri critical race, I'm going to say this later. I don't want to give away my message. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm not, I'm not going to say that. Uh, because, because because I'm I'm going to say it in a few minutes. <sighs> next question. Yeah, ne next question because everything I want to say in response to that question is in my message that I'm going right, to well, deliver in a few minutes. All right, there was like three of you that asked a similar question, so sit tight. You're going to get that one answered. Uh, the last question that we'll do here, and then we'll take a, a break, is really just around um, resources. We've named a number of them here. There's great books. Um, obviously, the Bible is a phenomenal resource, but um, people leave here. They've said, I have been asleep on this issue. I'm ready to get armed up. What are some good resources to go and get um, really better equipped for, for this particular issue? Yeah, so I screenshot. I screenshot some uh, some books. Uh, th those of you who listen to the Just Thinking podcast, you already know. If you listen to us, you're gonna spend a ton of money on books, okay? Because we're all we're, we're always we're always recommending books. If you're writing, if I have several to recommend for you, okay? Get your pens ready, Get guys. Your pens ready. <clears throat> um, the first one is titled "The Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education." Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education, first edition. First edition. It's edited by Marvin Lynn and Adrian D. Dixon. 
okay? Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education. This book will help you understand how, criti how critical race theory is being taught in the schools and what the goal is of that, okay? K through 12 included, all right? Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education. Um, intersectionality as Critical Social Theory. Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory by Patricia Hill Collins. Intersectionality as Critical Social Theory by Patricia Hill Collins. Then there's what's considered the, you know, the Bible of critical race theory as critical race theory and introduction. And just to clarify, these are resources that would be the opposing view, those supporting wokeism yes, and CRT. Correct. So you understand their arguments. Yeah. Re remember now, I'm from the Michael Corleone School of Apologetics. You have to know what your enemies believe. If you're going to be a good apologist against what they believe, you have to know what they believe. So get critical race theory an introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefancic. Delgado and Stefancic are married. They don't share last names, but they are ground zero uh, for critical race theory uh, and promoting it, okay? Next, I mentioned this this morning, Atlas of the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Uh, this one is by David Eltis, E-L-T-I-S, and David Richardson. Atlas of the Transatlantic Slave Trade. Subtitled, The Lewis Walpole Series in 18th Century Culture and History. Get a copy of that. It's illustrated amazing maps and diagrams along with statistics. <clears throat> and then also on the, um, on the slave trade again, get The African Slave Trade by Basil Davidson. The African Slave Trade by Basil Davidson. Two more, or three more, sorry. I mentioned this book in my message this morning. It's titled The Myth of Race by Dr. Robert Wald Sussman, last name is S-U-S-S-M-A-N, The Myth of Race, subtitled The Troubling Persistence of an Unscientific Idea. Love that subtitle. There's also a book titled The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, The Color of Law, subtitled A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Now, this, this book is important because it gives you a documented history of how redlining happened uh, in, in the United States. And one thing I love about what Virgil and I do, <clears throat> we get accused of a lot of things being conservatives who are black. One of the things we get accused of is, is ignoring history. I mean, that, w that makes me want to laugh because if you listen to even one of our episodes, you know how much study and preparation we put into those episodes. And one of the things that we do, we study history. We acknowledge the reality of what happened historically. We don't try to avoid any of that. But we want you to understand history accurately. Accurately, okay? The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein is one of the best books you'll ever read on the practice of redlining that occurred in the United States in the 1940s and 50s. And then lastly, there's a book titled Activist Theology. Activist Theology by Robin, that's Robin with a Y, Robin Henderson Espinoza. Now, let me warn you in advance. If you get this book, you're going to hear some of the most convoluted gibberish you've ever read anywhere. And you're going to hear some of that in my message as well in a few minutes, not from me, but from people I quote. <laughs> because what you're going to understand, the more, the more intersectionalist you read and the more critical race theorists you read, you're going to understand what they do is they write for their peer groups. So these, these are books written by academicians for academicians. So they use these uh, plethora of multisyllabic words that don't mean anything because they're trying to impress their peers. 
But you need to read books like this in order to understand what the other side is thinking, what they believe. Okay, so sorry to interdate you with those titles. But uh, again, if you my desire for you after this conference is to leave here being a better apologist. Okay, one who can give a better defense for the true claims of the gospel. And one one of the things that you have to do in preparation to do that is read and study what the opposition is believing. Okay, so great response. And then just. You know, as a follow-up to that, there is this balance that we have to strike, right? We need to know what the opposition is thinking, but would you argue that the most important thing we could do is know our Bible and yes. know the truth uh, yes. fu- foundationally? <clears throat> yes, absolutely, because I-, I mentioned that this morning. You have to know your Bible so well. See, see knowing the Scripture is what makes you an apologist. These books don't make you an apologist. Knowing the Scripture and knowing how to filter what these books teach— through the scriptures, that's what makes you a better apologist. You see, you have to once you read these folks, you know, your, if you know your Bible well enough, you'll know where to go. You will know how to answer the uh, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. You will know how to answer the uh, Cheryl I. Harris, who wrote a paper, uh, white paper titled Whiteness is Property. You'll understand how to know how to answer someone like that. You'll understand that critical race theory is rooted in the violation of the, of the commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. So you'll know how to relate these ideologies to what the scriptures teach, but you have to know the scriptures so well. As a matter of fact, in a, in a few minutes when I, when I give my uh, second message, the latter part of that message, I'm going to give you five reasons why critical race theory is unbiblical. After I give you everything else, I'm going to wrap up with that. That's perfect. And we have exactly four minutes, so Phil, I'm going to give you the last word since truly Daryl's going to get the last word on the conference today. Um, if you had to give one marching order to this group who has kind of heard all this information, what would your marching order be for people as they leave this conference? Be courageous. Um, uh, you know, the key verse that you quoted from 1 Corinthians 16 uh, says, act like men. And that's what it means. The, the primary uh, moral quality of manhood in Scripture is courage. And that's an instruction to the whole church. It obviously applies mostly to men, but it applies to women as well, uh, that we need to be courageous uh, in how we deal with these issues. And I think um, evangelicals have fostered an attitude now for maybe more than a century uh, of timidity when it comes to confronting ideas that are popular in the world. And it has not served the church well. And unless evangelicals recover a sense of biblical courage, I'll be actually speaking on this in the, at the Shepherds Conference this year. They assigned me uh, Moses' marching orders to Joshua. And it's the very thing he says to him, have courage, be courageous. Uh, it's what Paul repeatedly says to Timothy, you know, have courage. Uh, Timothy may have been a, a timid soul by nature. I, I think a lot of us are. Uh, but uh, courage is a virtue, particularly when it comes to standing for biblical truth and biblical values. And I, I think of all of the things that are lacking in the evangelical, well, there are a lot of things that we lack, uh, concern for biblical soundness and, and um you know, uh, a, a passion for evangelism. These things are missing, I think, from churches today. But the one thing that I think has been most damaging to the testimony and growth of the church has been a lack of courage, starting with leadership, but it goes all the way down into the pews. So be courageous. 
That's, those are good words. Be courageous. How about a round of applause?